As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops and Tops Project 70. Check it out as soon as you can. A lot of cool cards launching each and every day. Derek Van Riper back from vacation with a guest co-host, one of my best friends in this business, Vlad Sedler. You know him on Twitter as RotoGut. Vlad, of course, writes at FantasyGuru.com, and he is one of the absolute most successful players I know, both in fantasy baseball and in fantasy football. Vlad, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, DVR. Always a pleasure to talk to uh, one of my oldest friends uh, in the industry. Yeah, man. It's been a while now since we've been doing these things together, and it's been uh, really a a strange year. I I think we say this every year, like, oh, this year is so weird. This year is so different. 2020, okay, shortened season pandemic year that was unique onto itself, and hopefully Mm -hmm. we never live anything like that again. This season, the injuries have been through the roof. I mean, Derek Rhodes... Uh, has the the data on that over at Baseball Prospectus, and you see just how much we're dealing with injuries league-wide, and it's unprecedented. How are your teams doing so far? Have you weathered the storm pretty well through the first two months and change? I weathered the storm for the first month and a half, and uh, just, you know, you're never as good or riding as high as uh, you think you are. And then reality sets in. And that's basically what's happened over the last couple of weeks. My most important teams uh, have just been all been hit so hard with uh, with injuries and just one after another. And it just never ends. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I mean, over the years, there have been certain seasons where just Fantasy baseball just flows by really smoothly. Your transactions, you're setting lineups, you're picking up the right guys. And, uh, it, it's easy. It feels easy sometimes. Uh, this year does not feel that way. It feels, um, a lot more difficult, a lot more grinding. I think I'm, I'm more tired at this point in the season, <laughs> middle of June than early June. Uh, see, I already think it's middle of June than I would be uh, in previous seasons. And yeah, but we still have two thirds of the season to go. A lot, to, a lot to do, a lot to battle. Yeah, there were a few weeks in May, a few, few Sundays where I was grinding fab and, you know, it runs at nine o'clock central time for me. So not really late, but seven o'clock would roll around and it was just like, 
am I done with this yet? And I love fab. I love fantasy baseball. So I think that's mm-hmm. a pretty consistent feeling because it, it does seem like we're all digging in the corners more than ever before to replace all those players that were losing to injuries. I don't think anyone's been immune to it so far. I think maybe the, the one major front runner of all the leagues I play in, Michael Rathburn is killing the Tout Wars Mixed Auction League right now. He's got about a 15-point lead over second place. Jeff Zimmerman's there. And then there's like another 15-point gap between third. Like those two guys mm-hmm. are one-two, and I don't know if anyone can catch them. And I wonder with Rath if he has just been not only drafting a good team, but has been incredibly lucky with injuries on top of that mm-hmm. to have a lead like that. Because it seems like health and playing time volume has been the key to success so far this year. But there's lots of cool stuff we're going to talk about on this episode, we'll talk about some new tools you've been using, how you make decisions you know, week to week throughout the year, because we spend all this time getting ready for draft season. Basically, the day after the current season ends, I start prepping for the next season. I think you're not that far off that sort of timetable, too. It's a, it's a year-round endeavor, and then I feel like we make hundreds of decisions in season that are not quite as connected to all of that research that we did. So making those decisions is really important. We'll talk about how we do that. We'll talk about some of our biggest in-season hits and biggest in-season misses thus far and some of the uh, unique formats out there, including the second chance leagues that have been a little more popular again this year over at the NFBC. Some results came in from those, so we'll talk about some outliers there as well. Uh, but let's tee it up with the the week-to-week. What matters on a week-to-week basis? Like I have started to look at playing time on the baseball reference team pages like every single day. Like I've always used that tool, but I feel like I'm glued to those lineup pages every single day, looking for those patterns, looking for guys who are playing 90 plus percent of the time instead of maybe two thirds or three quarters of the time. Uh, as you're trying to make those decisions, like who to go after, who to cut, what is really moving the needle for you on a micro level? So the added element this year that I'm looking into more than, than ever before and in, in, in you basically hit the nail on the head. It's activity and it's health. Uh, we're seeing teams really uh, manipulate the, uh, the the 10-day IL, whether these are legitimate injuries or not. The fact of the matter is these guys are going on there at a higher, pay, uh, higher rate than ever. And uh, the one thing that we know as fantasy baseball players is the one thing you cannot allow yourself to do is accumulate zeros whatsoever. They're going to happen at times, but those are things that we can prevent. And and part of that is, is having the right backups in place. A lot of us are working with a, you know, seven player bench, usually not more or less than that. Uh, and hard decisions uh, sometimes need to be made. And that involves, you know, not holding starting pitchers that may or may not come back from injury in the middle of summer, uh, things like that. So activity and health is, is really number one. Uh, I even had tweeted about it earlier on, on Tuesday, uh, talking about how much I'm glued personally to uh, to roster resource uh, there, you know, for a free, free resource. I'm constantly looking at the, the transaction trackers. I'm basically have every team's, you know, I could, I could tell you over the last week, you know, who played uh, well, what position and, and how many days last week, like these are all so such important factors. So uh, there's a lot more to that, but I guess, you know, that's, that's where we start. I know a lot of the leagues you play in are NFBC leagues. NFBC leagues, of course, don't allow trading. Do you play in any leagues that have trades at this point? I don't. It's been a couple years for me. Uh, it's kind of a nice thing to uh, to not have to worry about. So um, just over the last couple of years, made made sure to just concentrate on a, on a specific type of format and just make that repeatable uh, because 
what ends up happening is, is I become a draft monster in a, you know, January, February, March. I just love to draft. And I try to be mindful of the teams that I have to manage during the course of the year. So I try to make more of those best balls and, and draft champions. But still this year, I ended up with 12 uh, fab teams, which is much more than, uh, than I've ever had. Usually I'm at six or seven. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that makes a difference. But the other big important part of it for me is, is, you know, I'm looking at, uh, the, the stuff we've always looked at. It's, you know, it's number of games in a week, you know, seven versus five, I think makes a difference. Uh, uh, in NFBC, we got those half weeks uh, that we need to look into for this half week. A lot of teams are playing two games, uh, you know, so a lot of three. And, uh, and then of course, digging into the, the stadiums that they're playing in, uh, opposing starting pitchers, the handedness of those pitchers, all those elements, I think are all part of the, the giant formula looking into it. Yeah. And I think projecting playing time or at least understanding how teams utilize their players is probably an undervalued skill in our game. The people who do that really well are much more likely to either make up ground or gain ground in season than people who don't pay as much attention to that or just simply don't have the experience to to do that as effectively as they probably should. Uh, the tool that I've been using a bit more this year too is the rest of season projections, right? They have them over at Fangraphs. You can look at those pretty easily. And those work if you're in leagues that have trades or if you're in leagues that don't because I think they they can ground you a little bit when <laughs> the shiny new toys come up, right? We've had prospects mm-hmm. come up this year. We've had some players like Adelise Garcia come out of nowhere, play a lot more and end up exceeding expectations and trying to figure out like, okay, who am I going to drop? Who am I going to pick up? Looking back at those numbers gives you a better sense of mm-hmm. what is likely to happen going forward than what has happened so far. Like it's so easy to be trapped in that, that recency bias. And I think I'd rather sort, if I'm looking at free agents, I'd rather sort by playing time then actually sort by production when I'm looking to make in-season moves. But then I want to look at the skills through the lens of the rest of season projection. Yeah. The first thing I do, as a matter of fact, when I'm sorting through free agents and I'm I'm starting that work on Thursday or Friday before I write my uh, Fab Values article, first thing I'm searching for is at-bats. I'm looking at at-bats over the last seven games, over the last 14, and then I'm diving into uh, the, the depth charts and looking to see how how teams are playing, who's playing against lefties, righties, even the catchers. You know, maybe there's a, a platoon. Is it based on who the starting pitcher is, or is it based on lefty, righty? So, uh, you know, all all those things are are really important to me. So I'm looking at all that. Uh, the other element that I think a lot of people don't really think about or look into, but I think it's important for uh, if, even for those that play DF, or it comes from those that play DFS. Uh, but it's looking at bullpens uh, because a lot of times when you're looking at matchups, like okay, this guy gets, uh, you know, he he happens to to, to face the uh, the three worst pitchers on, on the Nationals this week. It's like you know Lester and and, and Joe Ross or whatever, but. A lot of times these guys come out early and then sometimes a good bullpen steps in. They have, you know, they have good swing men. They have a good back end of the rotation. So, um, and they're covering anywhere from, you know, two thirds, three, or I'm sorry, one third or so of, uh, of a game, sometimes more if, if the pitcher gets pulled early. And, uh, you know, for example, I don't want, you know, my guys, my hitters that are, probably going to expect we're going to expect less runs from altogether if they're going to face you know the the brewers bullpen the dodgers you know things like that uh for me you know right before the show i wanted to take a look and see you know how how are the bullpens doing like you know, over the last couple of weeks over the course of the year and i just noticed that the reds just happen to have the worst bullpen in the major so far this year i mean i remember some amir garrett blowups but i didn't know they had any ra near six 
I didn't know that they were the only team in baseball, uh, only bullpen with a, a walks per nine of over five. So a, a lot of those things matter. Or another thing, I didn't realize that the Royals have one of the best bullpens over the last few weeks. You look at the names, it makes sense. Uh, but to actually look at it and, and allow it to help formulate your your plan per week is a different story. Yeah, I think building in more ways to look at matchup difficulty for hitters and kind of getting that as part of your your core decision making at the beginning of the week or in the midweek example too, that helps. Like that's a big deal. And I, I don't know if I always did that as well as I probably should. It's probably an area of my game that I could still do a lot better. Do you use any weekly projections at all? I know Derek Cardi system, the bat has a weekly projection option. I think Razball has some tools mm-hmm. for that as well. Do you have any numbers that you lean on looking at a, a more like micro level other than, you know, the games played and the matchup stuff that we've talked about? I don't, I don't, um, no, no reason other than I just, uh, I, I just kind of want to, to be able to trust my own research and instinct and not to say that those numbers wouldn't be helpful. And Hey, perhaps, uh, maybe that's uh, something I should try one week and, and just see how it compares and run an AB test there. Uh, but for the most part, um, I feel like I already have opinions on the following week um, earlier in the weekend. You know, by Friday, Saturday, when I'm looking at the matchups for the following week, uh, as long as the pitching rotations don't change all that much, aren't too many rainouts, I pretty much have an, a good idea of, of what I'm going to roll with. Or sometimes you just get a feeling. You know, you're looking at the schedule and you're like, okay. Brady Singer at Oakland this week. And typically I would start a Brady Singer, but there's just something about it that just doesn't feel right. And then I'll dig in and see how he does maybe against, you know, those batter types and things like that. So you can go into rabbit holes, but sometimes it's that that instinct that starts things off. So the next thing I want to look at with you is the new tools that you use. We'll say the newest tools. It doesn't have to be something that came out in the last year or two. I think for me, I'm beginning to scratch the surface more with Stuff Plus and Command Plus. Some of the things that look at individual pitches on a really granular level, spin and movement and different things. And what I'm using that for is to sort of find reasons to separate guys like Brady Singer from seemingly other ordinary pitchers. Like that that cluster of guys that they're basically not top 50 starting pitchers, but they're rosterable. They're on and off rosters. You definitely want them for two start weeks, definitely want them for easy matchups. Trying to figure out which of those guys are, are more likely to become fixtures on a team, that to me could be a pretty big source of an advantage. And I feel like you're not always going to see it in results because it, it can go wrong so easily for a pitcher. It can be one bad inning that completely changes those numbers. So when you glance at ERA and whip, you see a guy that has underperformed on the surface. But then when you look at the numbers like Stuff Plus and Command Plus, you might see someone who's actually well above average in terms of what they're working with. So like for me, that's been one of the things I've tried to use to make better pitching decisions on the margins. Is there anything that you've been going to more often in the last year, last couple of years that you didn't have back when you started playing? Well, I have a lot more than when I started playing. And, and I think back to, I, I'm trying to think back why and reason why 10, 15 years ago, I actually was doing well and had success where I didn't even know, you know, about, you know, platoon splits. I didn't know all these numbers and stats and just kind of ran with it and things worked out. And obviously the competition is more vast. It's, it's a lot tougher. And, and these leagues that we're playing in, especially where I'm in NFBC are just so incredibly com- uh, uh, competitive. It's, it's insane. And so, um, I try to gain whatever edge I can. Uh, there's still a lot of just sort of, uh, overarching basic things that that I'm looking at that are just you know just common sense uh you know I'm, I'm I'm watching pitchers I'm looking at basic advanced metrics and I'm not diving in too much 
And the other thing I try not to do is uh, try to glean too much information from something I don't quite yet understand. And I'll be the first to admit if there's something that I don't get. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, all the, all of our Alex Chamberlain's and Jeff Zimmerman's of the world. These guys are just like, you know, like uh, uh, galaxy brain, like super smart guys. And sometimes I don't get what they're saying. So if, if something that seems interesting to me, I'll dig in further. You know, obviously the the groundbreaking stuff that Eno's been doing over the years, I think is is also fantastic. So um, I, I, I'm not quite at that level of extreme uh, advanced metrics and being able to just, you know, just, just spit out every everyone's uh, number and, and relevance to it. But I'm trying to get there, uh, even with with Statcast. Like I'll look at it to maybe confirm things for me. I mean, like for example, one random thing that I happen to look at for hitters uh, are uh, you know just seeing how hard someone's hitting the ball. Not necessarily average exit velocity or exit velocity, but percentage of balls hit over 95 miles per hour. It was something that uh, basically made me think about you know, why Evan Longoria is all of a sudden you know sort of back a, a career renaissance. Sadly, it's the IL and we're not going to see where that takes things, but, uh, but things like that, looking for the outliers that, uh, that things that you haven't seen over the last couple of years or players that are just sort of coming out of nowhere or coming back from nowhere. Yeah. The interesting thing about Longoria too, is that he wasn't the only hitter on that roster who just got a lot better with the underlying mm-hmm. numbers. Like there's clearly something in the organizational approach in their instruction mm-hmm. from their hitting coordinators that has taken effect, whether that's hunting certain pitches or I don't know what exactly it is, but there is a philosophical change that has happened with the Giants that is real. And I think that has made me kind of reconsider a lot of hitters on that team that I'd previously kind of thought, oh, we got this guy figured out. Like We we know what Longoria is. We know what Brandon Crawford is. Mm-hmm. I think it also makes me more willing to buy into some of the other players they believe in, right? So if Lamont Wade Jr. comes up with the Giants now... I'm a lot more interested just by default than I would have been maybe two or three years ago when that park was playing even more pitcher friendly and prior to these successes. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, even looking back, this the, the seed was planted even for this uh, prior to the season. I mean, look at Mike Yastrzemski. I mean, he wasn't supposed to come up and be just this amazing prospect. Uh, he was sort of a marginal one and, and he just had basically the, the pedigree in, in terms of the, the, the name. Uh, but he wasn't supposed to be this good. At least I didn't think so. And so there's just a whole bunch of surprises like these, these career renaissances of Buster Posey after taking a year off. Brandon Crawford, never in a million years would I draft him or consider drafting him over the first of these last few years. And now I'm paying more attention to the Giants. I'm separating my fandom from the Dodgers. I'm having respect for the Giants for what they're doing from a fantasy perspective, both on hitting and the pitching side. And notice the correlation there with uh, with Gabe Kapler. I understand he's not the pitching co- or the the hitting coach, but he has his influence there, and he's very heavy in uh, in analytics, which I think is important. And you see them as kind of the East uh, the the NL Tampa Bay Rays, where they're the team, the first team that comes to mind. Where you're like, okay, let me see, do the Giants have mostly lefty pitchers they're facing this week, or mostly righties? Because they'll set their lineup that way. You just you kind of get stuck in your head. You know, okay bunch of righties coming up. I can play Brandon Belt. I can pick up Alex Dickerson, you know, uh, lefties. Oh, okay. It's Wilmer Flores week and, you know, things like that. So a, a lot of ways that you can um, take these things to your advantage, I think. Yeah. I think reacting somewhat quickly is important in fantasy baseball. Like for years, my sort of default advice through April and even through May was I'll be patient, you know, keep starting your best players, 
ride it out. It's a long season. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? I've probably said some variation of that every year for the last 15 years. And the, the more I say it, the less I actually completely believe it in, in like this absolute truth sort of sense. Like, yes, it is still a long season. And yeah, you could be in eighth place today and still win your league three plus months from now. But you need to be willing to react to things that are different. And I think deciding what is a little more predictive, what is more meaningful, what changes are more uh, sustainable, that that's still hard to do, even though we know it's important. So, you know, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is I I always try to want to push back on all of the things I used to think because the more I learn, the more I realize I didn't really know as much as I thought I knew back when I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh it's the same thing that uh, a a feeling or thought uh, uh Basically, something I recognized over the last couple of um, pre-seasons is taking this as a week-to-week season. It's it's 26 mini-seasons and really compartmentalizing it because you have to, you know, there, there's nothing you can do now for, you know, from three months from now because it can be in an, an entirely different league. And we're seeing that even more this this year with, you know, everybody hitting the IL. So what can you... Uh, what can you change now or what moves can you make to put yourself closer to a better position end of the year is to attack this week. You're still keeping the macro approach of the long-term season and, and the, you know, the, the next month coming up, but the only thing you can really address is, is for that week. And sometimes you do have to make those, those tough decisions and, you know, cutting your, your Carrascos of the world, just, you know, not having the, the patience to wait around for them to avoid uh, taking that zero for the week, uh, at, you know, at your hitting spot or whatever it is. And, you know, we have to be much more uh, discerning on how we're, we're holding that bench and who those players are within it. Yeah. And I think of an example just from today. I mean, we're having this conversation Monday afternoon, so lineup lock will happen by the time people actually get to listen to this show. But you know, J.D. Martinez wasn't in the lineup on Monday. It was the kind of thing for me where depending on the quality of your next best option, you could justify sitting him down for the first part of this week in NFBC leagues, just because injury optimism, even on a micro level, is pretty risky. Now, the reports suggested, I think Jen McCaffrey from The Athletic had a report suggesting that JD will be back in the lineup on Tuesday. Those plans changed, right? I mean, the team expects him back. Doesn't mean he will be back. So I think I've tried to be a little less optimistic when it comes to even like a a day-to-day, like a hamstring strain or a bruise or the types of things that you ordinarily say, oh, it's not an IL thing. It's fine. And I want to start my studs. Sometimes you just want to lock in the production because getting two games instead of one or three games instead of two, that starts to add up when you make decisions like that in the right way uh, over the course of the season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Vlad, we've talked about uh, having to make better in-season decisions. What has your process led you to in a good way so far this season? Who are some of the biggest upgrades you found along the way through the waiver wire? So the funny thing is the more uh, sort of attention as being this fab guru uh, that I'm getting, uh, the, the the less results I'm personally getting. And I'm, I'm just, I'm honestly admitting it, maybe it's just a small sample of a couple of months, but I'm looking back at my fab pickups and I'm noticing that it's basically the draft that uh, ironically has been carrying me and my success or the teams that are successful most of the year. Uh, I have jumped on a few times uh, in the right spots. Like, for example, Adolis Garcia. Uh, I picked him up a week before the hype uh, when I kind of saw him playing in the middle of the lineup. I saw his monster minor league numbers from 2019, and I grabbed him for basically the teens, $12 in one league, 15 in another. And even that was an overpay at the time. Nobody was, was bidding on him. The following week, he's going for 100 plus. So was happy about that, and that worked out. Um, outside of that, I did have a main event team, uh, NFBC main event where I picked up someone dropped Corey Kluber, uh, after three weeks, I believe. And I got an absolute fantastic run. I got, you know, the no hitter with him, uh, and Spencer Turnbull, actually, I picked him up for $12 on that same team. So I had, uh, at the height of my season, two no hitters on the same main event team in the same week, which is fantastic. Both are now good. in the L <laughs> one guy's gone, but, uh, yeah, that those guys are now part of the past for me. So Garcia is really interesting. He's been one of my biggest in-season waiver wire hits as well. I don't have him everywhere, but the funny thing is, is Nando Defino has loved Adelis Garcia before anybody cared about him at all. It's just such a Nando guy because he tore up the minor leagues, had power, had speed, going back to his time with the Cardinals in 2018 and 2019. And you know, last year just didn't really have an opportunity to play in Texas. So uh, we didn't get a chance to see what he would have done at AAA again. Maybe he would have tore it up for a third time. Most likely, he probably would have. But I think Garcia is really interesting because from a, a sabermetric standpoint, he's a flawed player. He doesn't draw a lot of walks. He strikes out a little more than you'd like him to. But he does so much damage when he connects, and he does all the things we care about. And I just wonder sometimes if I get a little bit myopic where I start to look as though I'm looking for real-life value instead of fantasy value because they're not one and the same. There's a clear difference. And I think what drove me to Garcia, aside from Nando kind of pestering me about him for a few episodes under the radar, was just that the Rangers were locking him in in the heart of that order right away. And I know we've seen players get called up and, and sent down like 10 days later after they hit cleanup. Like Nate Lowe in Tampa Bay a few years ago had that opportunity. I thought, oh, this is it. They love him. They're hitting him right in the heart of the order. He must be here to stay. They sent him back down. The difference, though, is that a non-contending team like the Rangers will ride that out as long as they possibly can. And I think it reminded me of Danny Santana two years ago, where it's just like there's no downside for the Rangers to just keep letting Garcia play. Where do you think we go from here, though? I mean, 16 homers, 7 steals through 51 games. If he doubled up over the final 100 games or so, if he finished with 32 homers, do you think that'd be a reasonable sort of assessment? 
I think that's fair. I actually uh, brought it up in a conversation earlier today. Uh, will he double, even double his his home run total from the rest of the year? And a lot of that has to do with, uh, obviously, can he stay healthy if he's going to stay healthy over the course of the season? There's a good possibility that at least hits the 30 home run mark. I think we can absolutely get there. We see the type of power that he has. We see that the way that this lineup is configured where he would, you know, will should continue to get a shot somewhere down there in the middle. Maybe if it won't be hitting third or fourth, even fifth or sixth. I mean, uh, these things will continue to, to change over the course of the year, but, uh, but absolutely either way, it's, uh, it's still a win for a lot of the folks that have been to, yeah, that, that didn't spend too much. Even for those that did, he's essentially paid off for you on this big stretch. And even if he does fall cold uh, for a two, three week span, chances are a guy like that who probably fits that streaky mold could get hot again and go on another barrage at some point. So I wonder, too, how much now that we have barrel rate, like I think barrel rate's really important. It's one of the newer things that I look at and I feel pretty confident that it does, in fact, mean something. It means a guy can do damage that we're looking for. He can hit the ball hard. He can hit the ball in the right launch angle. That's a combination of things that I think is generally pretty sustainable. A 17.4% barrel rate so far for Garcia. That's sort of the missing piece. If you go back and look at those plate skills in the minors and you don't know what the barrel rate was when he was putting up those great results at AAA, you kind of shrug him off. But if, if we knew, if he was putting up a 15 to 20% barrel rate that entire time at AAA, I feel like those low fab bids you were using to get him, that wouldn't have happened because everybody would have been just all over this guy saying, oh yeah, he did this in the minors too. So we believe we're going to throw 10 or 15% of our budget at Garcia instead of one to 2%. Yeah. And, and it's, it's an interesting uh, case study for all the guys that have sort of fallen in, into that mold since then. Uh, think back to, to Yerman Mercedes and his tremendous start to the season and how he sort of faltered since then. Uh, Patrick Wisdom really falls into that uh, into that as well. I mean, what really is it that's causing him to have this this insane barrage of 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 power? Uh, it, it, some change to his uh, you know to his swing. Like, what's happened there that a 29 year old all of a sudden hits so many balls out of out of the park in such a short period of time? And how is 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 that something that's sustainable? Is this an Adolis Garcia for us? Is is there even a comparison there? And next week, it could be somebody else, right? I mean, you, you never know where these guys are going to come from. The one common denominator is people will always overspend on these type of players based on recency, not only just over the course of the week, but like for 100% fact, folks wouldn't have spent as much on Patrick Wisdom this week. He was a top bid in a lot of 15 leagues if he hadn't hit those two home runs on Sunday alone. If he had just quietly, you know, 0 for 4 that day, he would not have received the same height. But hey, seven homers and 50 plate appearances sure does look a lot better than five and 50, you know? Yeah, or even instead of a two homer game, if he had two doubles, if he barreled up two balls and there was doubles in the gap instead, that changes the way people react because we're so results-based. So I, I do find myself kind of looking at the barrel rates and, and trying to decide... Hey, actually, maybe I can override my my previous concerns about this player's poor plate discipline because he barrels up a lot of balls, which kind of brings us to Keston Hira, who I think has been one of the most discussed players on this podcast. People email us about him all the time. Did you say disgust or disgusting? Both. Uh, I meant both. I said disgust. <laughs> um, I have a lot of disgust about uh, Keston yes. Hira every time we discuss him. I feel bad because I, I think he... 
I think he's a good hitter who's lost his way. And the reason I think he's a good hitter, I've always believed he was a good hitter, is because he uses the entire field. I don't think bad hitters hit the ball to all three parts of the field with authority. But he is so far away from the player he was when he showed up two years ago in terms of making good decisions at the plate. If you watch his plate appearances, he has a lot of non-competitive plate appearances where it's just like slider away, slider away, slider away, three swings and misses, back to the dugout. And he went down to AAA once. He just got optioned back down earlier today. Went Went down the first time, hit a lot, like did a lot of damage, but didn't lower his K rate. And I think that maybe should have been the warning sign that that we all needed to say, hey, wait a minute, he's still not quite fixed. Like there's there's like two ways you can struggle. You could be totally without confidence and going to AAA and just mashing at AAA could give you your confidence back. But if you're not making good decisions at the plate and you go down and you're still not making good decisions against lesser quality pitching, we shouldn't really believe you're going to come back up and fix that major problem that you had that got you optioned down in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a perfect example of um, of a failed hypothesis of mine where for many years now, I'm just, you know, uh, have had success picking up the struggling hitter, the the former all-star who, who slumps for a bit, goes down to the minors, gets things fixed and comes back up. And I was just way too optimistic in this case. Uh, where majority of folks weren't. I'm just, you know, thinking to myself, hey, this is Kesson Hira. He's not just going to fall to nowhere and, and, and be a nobody. I, I still believe in this guy, but I feel like there are some fixes that, uh, that he needs to be, that he needs to make along the way. And I was too optimistic seeing him, seeing that K rate in the minors and still sort of ignoring it and just thinking like, well, I wasn't interested in the preseason at, at that ADP. Now that he's dropped, I can pick him up on the cheap and, and let it ride and just, you know, ride off into the sunset. But that's the beauty of our sport. And that's what keeps it humbling is always something like this ends up happening. And so that's the case. This is where we're at now. Some folks probably went ahead and dropped them this past weekend. What I did on my teams with Hira, I just made sure that I set up myself up with another either corner or middle infielder since he's second and first base so that I wouldn't have to start him this week. Like I just didn't have the confidence with him not even being in the lineup. He's pretty much pretty much was only hitting against lefty. So I made sure that I had somebody in for him so I wouldn't have to play him this week. But I also at the same time didn't want to drop him. Yeah. And I think you have to decide like what are your bench spots really for? I think mostly in the NFBC especially, but this applies to any league that has a reasonably small bench, I think you can afford to stash one player. You can have one long-term stash, one struggling star that got sent down like Hira. Maybe we're using star a little too loosely here, but I don't think so. I mean, I think he looked like an early-round fantasy pick coming out of that rookie season. You could stash a prospect who hasn't come up yet, Wander or Bruhan, like someone that you think is really an impact player, or you can stash a really good injured player. Like one, you can always get away with. Two, you may have to get away with, but you got to have more multi-position eligible bats on your roster to have that second player stashed away. And I don't think you were wrong. If you waited out the first emotion for Hira, if you waited that one out, I don't think that was a bad process. I think in most mixed leagues now, if you want to wait out a second demotion for him, that's bad process. I think you probably have to cut him pretty much in any sort of non-keeper league or any sort of mixed league with 15 or fewer teams. You get to like a 20-team mixed league, it's so hard to find anyone who plays on the wire in those leagues. Sure, that plays like a mono league. You can stash them away on your bench there, but 
this demotion could be a lot longer than the last one because he's going to have to cut the K rate down before he comes back. And I think the other problem that works against him, the Brewers don't necessarily have a better option at first base, but it's not that hard to go get a first baseman. Like Plenty of teams have an extra corner infield guy available that you can trade for, especially bad teams. So I don't necessarily see him coming back anytime soon unless he gets back to being the guy that he was before that previous promotion way back in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and all it, it reminds me, and I guess uh, you're, you're kind of like my, uh, my roto psychologist, because I'm thinking that, man, I don't even, I'm not even practicing what I preach because I have more than one stash. I'm always preaching, just, just hold one stash, keep that flexibility. But you know, the, it, it's the, it's the brand of names. It's, you know, it's, oh my God, it's, it's Severino, it's Carrasco, it's Gallon, it's Sale. And before you know it, you have a whole bunch of these guys because you can't let them go. Oh, and then Luke Voigt got hurt, but, but it's Luke Voigt. How can I drop him? And so that, you know, that, that becomes really difficult to manage. Void is legitimately one of the most difficult players to make that decision on because it seems like a lot of his injuries are four to six week injuries, which are yeah. usually long enough to cut a player, but he was so good, especially in the shortened season and really on a per-game basis since he's been a Yankee. When he's been healthy, he's been amazing. He's one of the most difficult players to drop in a 15-team league because you know he's better than anybody else you're going to throw out there once he comes back, and you're going to lock him in when he's healthy. But it takes a lot of discipline to actually follow through on this. That's why we talk about it as much as we do. Uh, I think we're kind of naturally talking about some in-season misses now, too. Jared Kelnick got optioned down on Monday, and... I'll readily admit I'm I'm wrong. I thought he was major league ready coming into the season. I thought the Mariners were wrong to even delay bringing him up initially. And, and the reasons why they did it, of course, are, are wrong. I'm never going to defend that. But clearly at a certain point, when the results are as bad as they've been for a player like Kelnick, you do need to send a player down. And in this case, it seems more like a confidence problem than a process problem where expectations were really high. He wanted to come up right away and, and crush it. He didn't. So now he's going to go back to Tacoma. Would you consider still stashing Jared Kelnick? If you had a reasonably healthy roster, do you think it's still worth waiting it out? Or do you think it's more like the Hira situation where obviously in Keeper and Dynasty, he's still great and AL only leagues you wait, but in mixed leagues, do you have to cut him loose? It depends on the format. I think in 15 teamers, I think you, uh, you continue to hold so long as you don't have uh, too many of those stashes now. Uh, 12 teamers is a, is a different animal because it's a valuable roster spot and there are guys that, uh, what are you really holding for? You're holding for the, uh, 90th percent, uh, percentile outcome, which may not even come this year. And we don't know when he'll even be up. Uh, and there are always viable bats available there in uh, free agency. So I think you, uh, you can go ahead and drop them in 12th. The sad part is, is he leaves on that uh, that streak, right? So when he comes back, it's going to be a lot of pressure to get that hit. I think his 0 for 39 is still standing. Yeah, and I think back to when Kyle Tucker debuted a few years ago. I think he had an 0 for a week. It was like an 0 for 21 stretch or something to start his career before he finally got his his first big league hit. I mean, imagine, imagine doing that your first week in the big leagues. At least Kelnick got the first knock out of the way, I think, in his second game. And mm-hmm. getting that kind of off your back is obviously better than carrying it for a week. But yeah, you're right. I mean, just the the mental block that you have to break through uh, is kind of a big one in this case. I, I think in most, most mixed leagues, he probably is more of a cut than a stash um, because most people have more than one significant injury already. I think you have to be in a really fortunate health situation to be able to get away with holding him for the time being. But 
if you told me he's back in three weeks, I mean, I guess we're probably still talking about a guy. If he mashes, he's going to go for eight to 10% of a fab budget where he gets dropped. It'll be less than the first time we're available, which was almost nowhere, but it's still going to be a significant amount of fab, relatively speaking, to go back and get him when he comes back. Yeah. I mean, just in general, it's just a good, these are at least for a fantasy learning perspective, these are good things for it to happen, at least for the folks that are willing to, to, to get a lesson from it and just, uh, you know, sort of just be careful on the hype. I mean, no matter who it is, I mean, is anyone really worth uh, 50, 60% of our budgets and everyone's human at at, at some point, this this is going to happen to anyone. So uh, yeah, good lesson for us all. We're going to go through that with Bruhan, I think, more than anything else, because Wander, like Kelnick, has been stashed in so many leagues that there aren't that many places where you're going to have a chance to bid on him once he gets that opportunity. But Bruhan was drafted a lot less often. So once he comes up, and especially if he does what, what Patrick Wisdom did this week, if he has a big week, that first partial week that he's up, yeah. it's going to be just complete chaos based on the quality of the season he's having at AAA and all the expectations that we have for him. Uh, at this point but yeah two guys that i mean both Hira and kelnick i i thought they'd be much better than they've been uh, to this point and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn's varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. All right, Vlad, we've made it through the paying the bills portions of the show. And I want to talk to you about some of the second chance league draft results, because I think we're we're hitting a point in fantasy baseball where I don't think the game needs to be overhauled. But I think I'm I'm reaching this point where I want to do the most fun part of the season more than just in March. And I think we've had a few legitimately fun attempts at this over the year. Second chance leagues, I think, are the biggest like mass marketed one so far. Jake Seeley was doing a league in the past where the season was broken up into thirds. And after every like 50 games, you'd get back together and redraft again. But there was a little bit of a holdover effect in the roster. You could hold like 10 players that you drafted. So you didn't completely lose the core that you started with, which I thought was a pretty good creative idea. Uh, a few years ago, Ron Chandler had Chandler Park, which was like a monthly salary cap game. So you'd go for about four weeks. Prices would change every month. You could go ahead and sign up and do it again at the end of the month. It was awesome. And I wish I wish the timing had been different on that because I think that format was one that people would actually have wanted to play if it had come out like now instead of five years ago. But the second chance league is kind of exactly what I want because it's it's a chance to not only gauge the market, but to take advantage of heavy, heavy recency bias that comes into play. Like I was looking at the results before we started recording, and I'll throw them up if you're on YouTube watching this, the uh, first round is scrolling across the bottom of the screen. Like The first round didn't seem like complete chaos to me. Like It kind of seemed like about right. Like Reasonable adjustments were made. 
more pitching than you normally would see in a draft back in February or March. So I'm just kind of curious, like from a general standpoint, did you think that sort of adjustment made sense? Would you have pushed pitching as much as everybody else wanted to in these leagues? I think I would have. Uh, I did not a- end up um, entering any of uh, any of those second chance leagues, although I was sort of en- uh, entered by default with uh, uh, Rob Silver, who put together a team. And uh, basically, I'm I'm in that. I I, I didn't draft. Uh, I wasn't in on the draft, but uh, but I'm I'm invested. Um, and I would absolutely um, spend the money on the pit or invest on the pitchers early, just because uh, it, there was actually a fantastic thread on it uh, a very good nfbc player phil uh, dusalt uh gentleman north of the border was talking about how the 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 the, the pitching really is it's, it's it's almost a more bankable asset as long as you, you we can't predict the health but we pretty much know what you're getting from start to start within a smaller range of outcomes with the guys like jacob Degrom and garrett cole and you darvish uh, and and with hitting you just know how many amazing values they're going to be later just literally because of what have they how bad they've struggled over the last you know few weeks or somebody that's on il uh you look at these draft boards from the second chance leagues and it's just it's just remarkable some of these values like alec Baum is you know 100 overall two months ago all of a sudden he's 350 or whatever it is and just you know francisco lindor second rounder now a fifth rounder just so many different things and and we're only one third of the way in the season uh, a lot of rambling that I just kind of threw out there to basically say, yes, I would invest in the pitching early uh, if I were to do a draft and just load up on those hitting values. A lot of the guys that I feel will produce, they just hadn't really started to do so yet. Yeah, I think leaning into the quality bats that fell more than they should, that also that does give you that little nudge of confidence to say, yeah, it's okay, get that pitching early. I think the other part of this is maybe this belief that if you make it through the first two months of the season healthy as a pitcher, it seems more likely that you're going to stay healthy the rest of the way. Like if you're going to break, you're going to break in the first two months of the season. I don't know how true that is. It's just one of those things that like I'm more confident in pitching having seen 10 starts than I am coming out of spring training by comparison. And we're, we're going to see the, the, the sea change I think for, for next season as well. So long as things keep up, uh, sort of at the pace that they're they're going now, uh, it, 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 there's going to continuously be a, a, a bigger uptick of early round pitchers, right? Because five, six years ago, it, it really wasn't a thing whatsoever. You'd be lucky if there were one pitcher taken in the first uh, first round. Now you got half the first round in these second chance drafts filled with uh, filled with starting pitchers and and worthy ones as well. Uh, next year. You, it's just something you're going to start seeing more and more, especially if somebody wins the main event with a pitcher as their first uh, first rounder. Because through the history of the main event so far, that hasn't been the case. There's never been somebody that has won the overall with a pitcher in their first round. This year, we've seen a lot of the sharpest players take uh, Jacob Degrom in the fir- uh, first overall, Garrett Cole in the first. So the you know the times they really are a changing. Yeah, and if you're not watching on YouTube, Cole Acuna, Tatis, DeGrom, Bauer was the top five. Then Trey Turner, Vlad Jr., Bieber, Darvish, Soto, 6-10. through 10. Jose Ramirez, Max Scherzer, Mookie Betts, Brandon Woodruff, and Bo Bichette rounded out the first round again, going 15 deep. So, uh, I mean, Bichette was a guy that I I liked him back during draft season. 
but I thought he was going too early. So that's definitely a miss for me. I just I looked back and said, we don't have enough track record here to spend an early second round pick on him when I could get Walker Bueller or you Darvish or one of the kind of back of the top 10 starting pitchers was guaranteed to be there in that early to middle part of round two. So I am without Bo Bichette on all of my teams this year. And I am definitely sad about that, seeing that he made the leap into the first round. Not that he had far to go, uh, but I just, I, I think that type of player, the either one season or less early round player is one of the most difficult players to make a call on in any draft. Yeah, uh, the the only and I and I felt similar to you. Uh, it was it was that I didn't like Bichette. I mean, he was uh, basically the, uh, the top candidate for for this year's for my this year's Yelich column uh, in twenty twenty. Uh, obviously, a huge fan, but this season I wasn't willing to pay a second round price tag. Just as it so happened in a main event I did online, uh, uh, where I really wanted to get Vlad Guerrero. I got Bo Bichette uh, in in a spot where I just couldn't pass him up. I think it was something like Corey Seager was gone already, and and you know, sometimes luck lands to you that way. So I got the two three hitters um, as you know. Garrett, start with Garrett Cole, and then Bichette and Guerrero, uh, and that team is doing pretty well. It's it's up there and it's competing. And uh, now that I think about it, like I like the Blue Jays offense for a lot of reasons. I usually target AL East hitters, but. Gosh, I should have just gone all in on, you know, the Grichucks, like everybody, all the Toronto guys, anybody with a pulse that plays for uh, for the Blue Jays. Yeah, Marcus Simeon, like what he has done this year, what are the, like just a great all-round value in free agency for the Jays. I mean, I think he's going to get paid next time around because I think he's still a good enough shortstop to go play shortstop too. You don't really hear his name mentioned in that class, you know, with a lot of the guys who are going to be available, uh, Story and Seager and, and that whole group, of course. But I think he's, you know, like a great relative way to go. Like if you need a shortstop and you're not going to go out and spend 200 plus million on someone, you could be just as happy on a shorter deal with Marcus Simeon based on what we're seeing from him in Toronto this year. Uh, the recency bias, it, it's like worse than ever when you do a second chance league, but that's what makes it so fun. I mean, Nick Castellanos, who, who does pop, if you look at rest of season projections, he appears among early round hitters in terms of like projected Woba the rest of the way. And I know it's it's a gambler's fallacy of sorts to look at what he's done so far and go, yeah, that's great, but he's not doing that going forward. He's only going to be able to be the player that we projected him to be the rest of the way, right? I think some of those those big risers were actually pretty hilarious to see. Like he, I think he went 32nd overall on average in these drafts, which just is mind-blowing. Carlos Rodon... At 40, you know, Adelise Garcia, who we talked about earlier, 46 was ADP. Mark Melanson at 52. I think I was probably more wrong about the San Diego bullpen than I was about any other bullpen in the entire league, which I'm... I deserve a cone of shame for that. No, no, no. I'll tell you why. Because there was a period of time, you remember a couple of weeks before the season, where even coach speak made it very much likely that it was going to be Emilio Pagan. There were really no signs for it. I really do feel like anybody that uh, that was, you know, gung-ho, oh, it's Melanson all the way because it used to be a close, you know, all the the after, uh, the you know, the, the confirmation bias that would have come with it. I I wouldn't believe those people if they were to tell me it's Melanson or, you know, because it really wasn't up in the air situation. You had Pomeranz, Pagan, they'd signed Kila. So yeah, I mean, it was a tough call. Loaded pen with a lot at stake. The kind of place where if you struggle, you're going to lose your job quickly. He's been great. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all that being said, I'll admit being wrong about Melanson. There was no way I was getting near him at pick 52 if I was doing a second wow. chance league. Like that's that's just extreme. Uh, Francisco Lindor went 74th. You mentioned him as a guy that was a pretty big faller, and I think he's exactly the type of player I'd be looking for in that range. And I'm saying this as someone who's actually traded him away in two leagues in the last couple of weeks. One is a keeper league where I'm contending. I traded him to another team that's contending to free up cap space to get pitching. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of like a necessary move. It was like, well, Lindor might bounce back, but the Mets have been so banged up. The ceiling for the counting stats, I think, is a bit lower than it was coming to the season. Whereas I had no concerns about Lindor back in March. I thought he was fine at the early part of round two. Probably I would have said Lindor over Bo Bichette's a no-brainer. Look at the track record. That's the kind of dumb analysis I would have had just three months ago. I think you do have to look at that Mets offense and take a little bit off expectations-wise for Lindor, even if you're expecting a pretty big bounce back. So when you start to look at some of the players who, who've had their value fall a few rounds and they have that long track record, who are you most willing to believe in as legitimately strong rebound candidates for the final three plus months. I was kind of looking at, at this as uh, as maybe just uh, teams as a whole, and, and when they get some pieces back, and, and the offenses are are at full strength, or hopefully there will be times in their full strength. The two teams that come to mind are the Mets and the Yankees, to be honest, because it's hard for me to imagine them just being. Uh, sub 500 bottom of the barrel teams. I think the combination of their, their pitching, their strengths, the ownership that is willing to go out and, and get what is needed to not be an embarrassment to the, to the city, to the fans. Uh, I, I just don't see how these teams aren't going to fix things. You look at the Mets, uh, injury list and it's insane. I mean, everybody, everybody's visited. Think about a week and a half ago where I think Lindor was the only healthy guy from the original roster or opening day that that was on there there were guys that i hadn't even heard of and at some point uh mcneil's jeff mcneil's going to be back brandon nemo is going to be back michael conforto who i could really use uh, will be back and at some point this summer the pendulum will swing in the favor of the mets maybe carrasco and Syndergaard are are, are in the rotation uh and and things are just really just popping off and i can see that especially with dom smith there pete alonso i like that team uh to be honest, I think I like it a little bit more than the setup for the Yankees right now. Uh, yeah, just looking at that roster, you know, Gio Rochelle is your four-hole hitter. LeMahieu struggling at top. Stanton Judge always a worry with injury risk. Like, I feel like that's a team that's going to uh, end up needing to uh, to pick up a bat at some point. Yeah, I was just wondering too. Like, are you were you in on Glaber? back during draft season at the discount, especially because he was like a sixth rounder for a guy that. I thought was going to play every day and easily hit 25 homers with a chance of bouncing back closer to 2019, even if he didn't get all the way back. I didn't think that was totally out of reach for him, given how young he is and the quality of the lineup around him. He was a backup plan because most drafts, uh, I, I there was always a shortstop that I would love before. And a lot of times that was, uh, unfortunately, was Corey Seager or there was you know, Lindor or, or, or Turner or Tatis in the first round. So he was always the, if I get into those rounds and I don't really like anyone, then I'm going to go Glaber ahead of Baez. And an interesting thing with, with Glaber Torres, just a week and a half ago, I was doing just randomly looked at the bottom uh, exit velocity guys. Uh, uh, <laughs> he was top five. <laughs> he was there with the worst of the worst, uh, fifth worst in the league in average exit velocity. It's really strange because yeah. I didn't didn't see that coming early in his career. It's made me wonder if he's been hiding some kind of 
longer term injury or if there's just something going on with him that we that we don't know about yeah i'm looking at it right now there's 124 qualified hitters on the average exit velocity leaderboard glaber torres 121 so fourth wow. from the bottom i mean you just don't expect to see him down there with david fletcher kevin newman nick madrigal adam frazier jp crawford jerks and profar miles straw isaiah kiner falefa none of those guys hit for power like yeah. none of those guys will ever get near a 30 plus home run season and Torres did it as a 22-year-old. It just doesn't add he up. He almost hit 40, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, he hit like Amazing. 15 against the Orioles that year. Yeah. So even if you said, nah, the Orioles will get better, he's not always going to hit 15 against the Orioles, fine. Like That's why I, my 25 expectation mm-hmm. didn't seem unrealistic at all. That seemed like mm-hmm. a very good like median expectation and with great counting stats. I thought yeah. I thought he was one of the best values in the range. I think you're right. I think a lot of people that could could have liked him could have easily missed out because it was so easy to end up with a shortstop prior to that point. Um, and I thought Baez coming into the year was actually a really good value too, just because he doesn't really get days off. I think I was really seeking playing time, even in like the early middle rounds of drafts as something that would maybe separate uh, someone that popped up into that range for the first time from someone who had fallen into that range after a few years of being an earlier round option. Yeah. Yeah. For myself, uh, just for whatever reason, didn't end up with a lot of, uh, a lot of Cubs hitters on my teams. And then go figure, uh, Casey Cha, who's, uh, was recently inducted to the Hall of Fame of the NFBC, who, as far as I'm concerned, is the best, uh, uh, fantasy baseball player out there. He had a theme this, this, uh, this spring. It was all, uh, basically NL Central hitters. You look at his team. He's got all the Reds. He's got all the Cubs. And you look at the leaderboard. He's leading in homers, RBIs, you know, different teams, a different pitching thing, but, there's something that he locked in on for this year. And I can talk about it now because it's, you know, the, the drafts have happened, but yeah, he's got Castellanos. He's got bias, like all these guys that I weren't, wasn't super excited about in those ranges. I, there was always someone else. It was like, Ooh, you know, pitching in this area. Ooh, I got to grab my closers here. He was just pounding those guys and he's having a successful year so far. Yeah, definitely a lot of bounce back potential in the reds. I remember talking about them. I, I don't I don't have any teams where I stacked them or anything like that, but I was always getting one of those guys. The only problem is I also liked Nick Senzel. So there were some times where my Reds exposure ended up being yeah. Nick Senzel, and I thought Senzel could be like Winker, but with some speed, maybe a little less power. Yeah, not so much. It's been another uh, you know injury-plagued season for Senzel it, so far, but maybe it's in the second like- half. Well, it's like a deal. It's just a deal with the devil. There's there's just no way. If you already love Senzel, like majority of us fantasy players, and we'll be in next year. He can keep getting hurt. It'll always be like, oh, this is the year. This is the year. We just can't quit Nick Senzel. No, he was so good in the upper levels of the minors. Yeah. He has power. He has speed. He should, he should be a five-category player. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I will be a dummy forever with Senzel. And probably Victor Robles, too. I, I think it's easier to talk myself out of Robles. Like, blue ink year over year over year on the StatCast page. After, like, three years, finally, I might say, okay, yeah, he's not going to hit the ball hard. It's just not going to happen. But I'm pretty stubborn, so you never know. Maybe one more year for both of those guys. Vlad, uh, before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can read your work. Twitter, I am uh, Vlad Sedler at Rotogut, R-O-T-O-G-U-T. And my work can be found on fantasyguru.com slash MLB. Uh, and yeah, that's, that, that's where I'm at. And I really, really appreciate you, uh, you having me on and, uh, happy to talk with you anytime. 
Yeah, loved uh, having you step in for Eno today. Always a blast to catch up with you and always a lot of fun kind of picking your brain, learning more from you as one of the absolute best players that I know. Uh, the success you've had, we talked about, I think, back during draft season. Just the, the stats are ridiculous, dude. Your stats, like in 12-team NFBC leagues especially, you're, you're awesome in every format, but that format, unbelievable. And I think the hardest thing for me in a 12 will always be cutting players that I think deserve to be rostered like i cannot separate myself from those players that are like the fringy top 150 dudes who underperform like that is the hardest thing for me about playing that format it's the same thing for me like this is what i'm doing like wait before we jumped on the show and i kind of knew some of the topics i'm looking back at my 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 fab uh bids over the last few weeks and I'm just catching a lot of, a lot of errors, a lot of biases, a lot of things that I, I preach and talk about not to do. I'm catching myself doing. So this was like kind of a good checkpoint two months of the season to try to uh, keep myself from making these errors and then hopefully being back at the top of the standings at the end of this year. Yeah, do what you've been doing for like the last 15 years because that uh, has worked really, really well for you. But really appreciate your time. And you. again, give Vlad a, Vlad a follow at RotoGut on Twitter. Great follow there. Read his stuff over at fantasyguru.com slash MLB. Uh, by the way, before we go, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you should get one. $3.99 a month gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Eno and I are back with you on Wednesday. 